The reading of the scriptures from Jude, reading verses 3 and 4, so invite uh, your uh, faithful hearing of God's uh, living word here in uh, Jude's letter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I have uh, long believed that uh, you and I are stewards over everything that God has given us. Time, automobiles, money, whatever it is you could put down that you uh, own uh, really belongs to God. And that God will one day seek an accounting for all that he has loaned us that belongs to him and used to his glory. But the greatest of our stewardship, uh, bar none, the greatest of our stewardship uh, is the faith. The content of the faith as well as uh, the living of the faith. Uh, it is to these matters that uh, Jude uh, summons uh, his brethren as well as uh, the modern church to continue the fight for the received faith. The received faith, the content of the faith that's that's been given to the first century church because there's grave danger. And therefore, the sense of stewardship is all the sharper, all the more intense, all the more radical that we give attention. I understand the faith when I say the received faith to be an all-encompassing term. I mean, we might, we might say it includes the gospel, the scriptures, biblical orthodoxy. We could go on and on, but uh, we receive uh, all these things from previous generations. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, the apostles and the prophets, Old and New Testaments, uh, the first generation, uh, the followers of Jesus Christ, uh, they, they pass to us this received faith, and they shout at us to keep it. To keep it. At the close of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, a lady asked Benjamin Franklin, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin replied, a republic if we can keep it. God has given to us the received faith. Uh, we must keep it. If we do not, a grave danger uh, like a terrible curtain descends upon the church. Uh, can we keep it? Can we keep the received faith that the previous generations have given to us? It is a, it is a summons to stewardship and all that that implies. Uh, one application of mine be to study to show yourself to prove before God a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, stewardship in the case of uh, our text this morning is uh, presented uh, in an exemplary form. 
or because our author is a quintessential steward. Uh, he is preparing to write his churches, uh, making uh, all speed uh, in terms of zeal and earnestness. Uh, he's a man of passion. Uh, if you understand the stewardship of all the things that God has given to us, and chiefly the content and the living of the faith, we ought to be a people of passion and haste. Uh, in his design, his first design is to write about our common salvation. Uh, perhaps he wants to write a, a, a theological treatise about salvation, uh, in particular to all of those elements that were held universally subscribed to in all of the churches uh, in his lifetime, uh, absent which there would be no salvation whatsoever. That's what he wants to write about. Uh, something of a, a corollary text to this in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, he's uh, writing about rebellious men who must be silent because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of uh, sordid gain. And so again, uh, if you look back up to verse 4, to Titus, uh, who is facing this threat, present in the churches, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Common faith. You and I have a common faith. Uh, our common faith is the same as the faith uh, held in the days of uh, Titus and Jude. The teachings of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostles and the Prophets. A common faith. You violate that uh, to the ruin of the church. Uh, it is for us, uh, in terms of application, an implied rejection of individualism. You do not have your own private faith. You do not have your own self-defined faith. You cannot absent yourself from historic orthodoxy. Uh, or if you do those things, you are in a very, very serious way. Uh, you can't say uh, to the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus or Titus or Philemon, or the author of the book of Hebrews, or even to the elders of Grace Bible Church, well, you have your way and I have mine. Because we have a common faith, a received faith, that is uh, the same throughout the centuries. Uh, it is also an implied illustration of the importance of historical theology in church history. I think, sadly to say, in most churches, we give no attention whatsoever to historic orthodoxy, uh, ancient creeds, uh, church history. There's Americans simply give attention to the present and the future. It's a very dangerous path to take. Uh, but it is here that our common salvation can be traced in the providence of the Great Spirit and His preservation of doctrine uh, among His people as the ultimate cause of stewardship. Because behind the human agents and the human authors of Scripture and the human apostles uh, is the divine author who passes to us a torch and uh, says to us, keep it. Stewardship implies a duty. Uh, but in the midst of that duty, uh, Jude uh, encounters present circumstances that interdict his intentions to write about our common salvation. So he changes course based upon the exigencies of uh, the times in which he is living. Uh, the text reads that he had the necessity or felt compelled to write about a more pressing matter. 
Notice again, I felt the necessity uh, for he's pressed upon by necessity. Uh, his purpose now is to encourage them to the duty and notice really the purpose of the entire uh, brief epistle uh, comes uh, out here. Uh, to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. So, uh, he changes course. He wants to write about our common salvation. Now he changes to summons all of us to earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, in the Greek text, it is a compound verb that's used only here. Uh, but the simplex verb is found in athletic and military contexts that speak to serious effort uh, and fight. Uh, let's turn, if we would, in our New Testament to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 and verse 12. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, tells his young uh, apostolic legate, uh, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. The parallel is take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, you and I are surrounded by witnesses. Hebrews 12, 1. Uh, we're to fight the good fight. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. I fought the good fight. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to do something? At the end of his life, he says, I've done it. I've fought the good fight. Uh, I have... I have uh, finished the course. I've kept the faith. I think of the many, many people who begin the race and at uh, some point in their lives because of circumstances, whatever the case may be, they, they leave it off or change the course. Uh, not so with the Apostle Paul. Uh, so what do you do when you fight? Uh, I mean, how, how should you fight? Let me give you one illustration uh, from uh, the words of the Apostle Paul. Uh, uh, book of Exodus, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against uh, the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He is arraying before the church an order of battle that is so sinister and evil and powerful that he writes to the church, put on the full armor of God, leave nothing off, and he describes it. Uh, much of this, you know, comes from the uh, book of Isaiah because this is how the great messianic warrior is dressed. Would it look like him? Fit ourselves out in the armament. Why is that? Uh, because the end time tribulation has begun. Uh, that's why you, you arm yourself to the teeth. Because the end time tribulation has begun, the last great event to seduce the church physically and spiritually, has begun. So what should you do? Well, put on the full armor of God and pass on the received faith. 
as a good steward. You know, imagine, uh, imagine yourself uh, living in the uh, time of the Second World War. I mean, let's say, for the sake of illustration, it's 1943. Uh, so we're, we're in the heart of the fight uh, against uh, uh, Nazi Germany and uh, Imperial Japan. Imagine waking up on a Sunday morning and opening the paper to read the headline that uh, the President of the United States orders the armed forces to demobilize. Well, I mean, who, who demobilizes in the midst of a war? I might tell you that the church does. Uh, because the vast majority, certainly in Oklahoma, of the professing Christian church says that we're not at war. So I'm not so sure why Paul writes for us to uh, arm up. Uh, we're not at war. That's for a future generation to fight, not for us. And so we've de demobilized in the midst of the fight. I mean, we read the words of the Apostle Paul and uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, but I'm not so sure we take it as seriously as we ought uh, because we're not in a battle. That's, that's for a future generation to fight of an ethnic people. And so we disarm ourselves and we forget the incredible order of battle that the Apostle Paul has set before us in verses 11 and 12, Ephesians chapter 6. I will tell you otherwise, we're in the fight. And the array against us is incredible. And they want everything, including your soul. And they will not let up. Uh, and so it is the reminder to put on the full armor of God. It's a reminder every day to walk humbly before God, knowing that he is the one that is ultimately keeping us. And if it were any other way, we would soon fall away. Uh, the faith is the most pressing matter of all time. Its importance spans the generations. Upon it hinges the eternal. Men will rise and fall in time. They will progress or regress in their disciplines and their accomplishments. Families will go through cycles of popularity and accomplishment and sometimes fall into ruin. Companies that uh, have stood for generations will someday go bankrupt. But absent of faith, there is but irrevocable loss in the eternal estate. For the true faith is the only way to get in. And God gives to the church the stewardship to preserve the content and its living. It is therefore worthy of our time and effort, our prayers, our resolves. Uh, the, the simplex of verb, uh, which forms the basis of the compound verb to earnestly contend for the faith, is that from which we have our English word to agonize. To agonize in preparation for battle, in studying, in looking at the received faith and how it progresses through time and history of the church and the formation of the great creeds, in studying uh, the scriptures. Jude is so engaged as a faithful steward and so must we. We must carry on the fight and continue in the struggle to preserve and to keep it at all cost. I remember when I was uh, 
uh, going through uh, uh, basic training in the Army. One of the things we did was uh, perform guard duty. Uh, I was always uh, intrigued because uh, our guard duty was always at night. There are powerful forces that tell you to go to sleep. And if there's nothing to worry about, it's 2 and 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. So one of the things they do is they, they give you a list of general orders. There were three of them. I can still remember the first one to this very day. That I will guard everything within the limits of my post and not quit my post until properly relieved. Until properly relieved. Until properly relieved. As a Christian, you have not been relieved. Christ has not yet come. Stand your post until he comes to relieve you. Because that is what it means to earnestly contend for the faith. Furthermore, the faith is modified by the phrase, most instructive, once for all delivered to the saints. The generations of the apostles and prophets and the Lord himself have passed and entrusted the corpus of Scripture and the Gospel to us as a divine commitment to protect. And this occurred one time, once for all delivered to the saints. That the common salvation in the days of Jude have been delivered to the church were to protect it and defend it at all cost. By our efforts, by our prayers, by arming up, and if the case may be, by even our lives. Uh, one time for all time. It's like a benchmark. Uh, the common salvation is our benchmark. We cannot, we must not stray from it. The agents are human, but governed by the divine, thereby establishing that the faith is immutable, authoritative, and propositional. Nothing new, nothing old. Nothing else. It's kind of like, uh, if you will, uh, relay races in the Olympic Games. I don't know, four by 100. They pass something, do they not? It's not just running the race that's essential. It's a successful exchange of the baton that's one of the most critical parts of the race. You drop it, you're disqualified, or you're not going to make it. Sometimes... Uh, thought about that in terms of, say, the millennial generation. I don't like that baton. I want a magenta baton. I want mine studded with pearls, three inches longer. I want mine that I can press a button here, a recording of, I mean, I don't know, Little Richard. You don't get to measure the baton. You don't get to define it. You don't get to change it in any way. But simply to take the exchange from the previous generation to faithfully discharge it to the next. Upon which the security of the church and all of life become relevant. And I'm not unmindful of the fact that we are only secure because Jesus Christ secures us but he also holds us responsible to do the right things, to be good stewards, to pick up the fight, to engage our armor. 
because our faith is immutable, authoritative, propositional, nothing new, nothing old, nothing else. Let's, let's look at this in terms of Scripture. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, uh, in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. The American church is long in the tooth about coming up with new traditions and new ways to redefine everything so that we can be more modern and generational. But we ought to be very careful. Uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3 uh, and uh, the 6th verse. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. That's the passing of the baton. And all of this means that stewardship of the faith and transmitting it to future generations as received, it's a solemn priority and duty. Uh, in our fellowship hall, uh, you know that we have a graphic display of the Reformation wall in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, the Reformation wall has four major figures, but it also has uh, six or so minor figures, uh, men who fought to deliver and recover the historic gospel to deliver it to the succeeding generations. We use it here as a Grace Bible Church as a reminder to pass on the same, that the Protestant Reformation was the greatest recovery of the gospel of all times. Uh, we have uh, the great solas uh, written everywhere in our church to remind us of the received faith and what it means. It's a living reminder that our faith is generational in the preservation of the truth. You know, the, uh, the Puritans that landed in the United States brought that faith to America. It prospered in the 1700s. Men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. In a little over a hundred years later, everything was reversed. Second Great Awakening, by and large governed by the theology of Charles Finney, overturned the theology of the succeeding generation, the reformers, the apostles, the prophets. Did you know that most every major American denomination in the United States today, not all of them to be sure, But the vast majority of them come out of the 19th century in the theology of Charles Finney. Incredible. We have forsaken our fathers. We have dropped the baton to incredible ruin, the life of the church. You know, the Apostle Paul writes uh, Timothy, the things that you have heard among me in the presence of many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will teach others also. There is no doubt about the chain of succession. Uh, but if you look at the vast majority of uh, evangelical denominations, they go no farther uh, than the 19th century. God help us. 
And even the major denominations that confessionally stand uh, with uh, the Puritans and the Protestant Reformers have long since given up uh, any credence in the great confessional standards. That everywhere men are dropping the baton, redefining it, repainting it, uh, making it look more relevant, chasing youth culture, and on and on. And uh, Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is uh, giving us an example of a man who is engaged as a good steward, passing the baton. Uh, but now uh, he gives us in uh, the next uh, verse the reason, the reason for his writing. Uh, it's marked out by the uh, simple conjunction uh, for. Uh, we, we, we could translate that causal, uh, but the key is it's the reason for the previous verse. The reason we're to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So he writes to awaken us to our duty uh, based upon a serious and ever-present threat that men have crept in unnoticed. Uh, they have infiltrated the church. Uh, if you will, the church has been invaded uh, and Jude is awakening them to that reality. Uh, one of the most tragic illustrations of this in all of Scripture uh, is uh, uh, the Galatian epistle. Uh, if you turn to uh, uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2 and the fourth verse, uh, we read of something radical that's happened. Verse 4 uh, but it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. That the people sneak in and they want to destroy the church. Make no mistake about it. This is not a lighthearted matter. They come in to destroy. Many of them, I don't think, fully understand what they're doing, but they are energized by the great counter to the great Spirit of God. And make no mistake about it, whether known or unknown, they are engaging in a duty so nefarious that if it stands, the church will be destroyed. That's why Paul is writing. Uh, look at uh, chapter 1 in the 6th verse. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The gospel of Charles Finney is a different gospel. that forsakes the sovereignty of the grace of God in saving His people and securing them forever. Uh, I don't know if you've ever studied uh, uh, the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, certainly you've seen the movies or heard reference to it. Uh, the battle uh, began, uh, began by uh, German commandos uh, uh, dropping 
in the midst of the American lines. Uh, the chief commander was a gentleman by the name of uh, Colonel Otto Scorzini. Uh, and he gathered uh, his commandos from men who had studied in America at our American universities, who could speak flawless English, so much so that you couldn't tell that they were German. They had lived in America and studied our cultures and our ways and our dress and how we did things uh, down to the minutest degrees so that uh, they could deceive. And they changed traffic signs. Uh, they uh, disrupted uh, lines of communication to sow discord and confusion. Uh, they invaded. They looked like American soldiers, talked like them, dressed like them, acted like them. And you really had to know your stuff uh, to understand the deception. Of course, ultimately they failed uh, because ask him, well, where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. Well, go get Joe Don from Brooklyn and come up here and ask him questions about restaurants in Brooklyn. Or ask him about the Brooklyn Dodgers that only someone from Brooklyn would know. A phony would not. And they uncovered them all. And because they were spies, they killed them all. But those men have crept into the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't know your history and your theology and your doctrine and the scriptures and your arming up and praying up, the people come and they gain an entrance and they become our Sunday school teachers and choir members and on and on. And they come to secretly destroy and infect the church with that which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the reality that the center of gravity is the content of our faith and the battle rages in every generation to dilute it, to pollute it, to change it so that it ceases to be the faith except in name only. I... I have this sneaking, agonizing contention that uh, the greatest disease in the American church today is nominalism. It's a reminder that we face enemies from without, to be sure, but the greatest are from within, our own kind. And part of our stewardship must be the defense, the defense that never rests. And Jude describes them. Notice the description. First, they were written about from old. Long ago, the prophets and apostles foretold us that these men would come. It's a broad reference to biblical history. Uh, certainly, we'll pick this up in uh, verse 11 as ancient enemies of uh, Israel uh, were simply uh, types of the dangers that would come. A uh, couple of biblical references. Uh, Book of Daniel. Uh, uh, is, uh, uh, is a marker of uh, prophets writing of men that would come. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32, and by smooth words he will turn to godliness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But he's going to seduce the covenant people with smooth words. He's going to tickle the ear in the words of the Apostle Paul. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, Now at that time Michael the great prince 
who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation till that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Great battle Jude is uh, forecasting. Uh, and, and the archangel will come to protect the people of God. Uh, we'll look at this on a subsequent occasion. Uh, perhaps a contemporary reminder uh, to the apostolic community of the New Testament is uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 uh, uh, and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. My friend, we are at war Make no mistake about it. No mistake about it. Uh, but it simply goes all the way back to the prophets and the apostles telling us that the end time tribulation will come. And I think most explicitly in the American church, it's by redefining the truth and diluting the gospel and polluting it uh, so it's barely recognizable uh, from that delivered uh, by the Lord and the apostles. Uh, and we deceive ourselves if we say there is no tribulation, nothing to worry about. No reason to arm up. No reason to earnestly contend for the faith. That's for a successive generation. I think we should reread Jude and understand uh, verse 18 that the last days are upon us. Secondly, they are ungodly in reference to their conduct irrespective of their profession investments. Uh, another parallel to this is uh, Titus uh, chapter 1 in the 16th verse. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Uh, thirdly, they change or make the grace of our God into license to sin. I mean, that's the uh, libertine spirit, antinomianism, Lastly, they deny Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. The word Master is uh, oftentimes in the New Testament used in the context of slavery, but it's also used of God. He, he is our Master. Uh, as, as is the reality that we are His servants and slaves to serve Him as stewards. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and, and verse 21 uh, therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful for the Master. Applies, of uh, course, uh, course, to us. Second uh, uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, uh, in verses uh, 1 and 2, uh, another place this word is used. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Dangerous times. Breaking out in the days of the apostles. In Jude's day. In our day. And the illustration of this is... Uh, Ongoing. I mean, this, this controversy occasionally raises its head in the life of the church. 
the lordship salvation controversy, that you can know Christ as Lord, but never serve him as your master. You can abandon your flesh to its service and pleasure, and uh, because Christ is your savior, you have nothing at all to worry about. The point of that, of course, is uh, desperately false, uh, because Christ comes not just to save us, but to radically change us. And one of the ways that that is expressed is the perseverance of the saints that uh, we are imperfect to be sure, but we in the long haul persevere because Christ is our master and he's dispatched the spirit to radically change us. That Christ is not just our savior, he's our Lord. Now I understand we render imperfect service, but service nonetheless. And the confession, of course, is to be expressed uh, not just by content, but in the living of a life to protect the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we are, we are stewards. A deposit of faith, content, its living has been given to us from the first generation. We are to preserve it, transmit it as received. Otherwise, uh, we bring ruin into the church. And the church, uh, the visible church, will suffer ruin. The invisible church, of course, cannot because it's kept by the power of God. But the visible church will stagger fall in the ditch. Uh, and so, uh, this is uh, our summons to be stewards this morning. Uh, we are also uh, summoned uh, to be stewards of the calling of uh, the table of the Lord. Because Jesus transmits to us uh, this sacrament. Uh, he, he tells the Apostle Paul, in the night in which I was betrayed, Remarkable words. He knew he was going to be betrayed, but he stood firm, even to the point of death. Even death upon the cross. I delivered to you the sacrament. It changes the meaning from the ancient Passover uh, to apply to himself as the Lamb of God uh, that we eat and drink him. We eat his flesh and drink his blood uh, as a visible Reminder to our senses that by faith we apprehend the merits of his body and blood to cleanse us and to make us new. To remind us of the importance of forgiveness and to remind us of godly living. The table signifies the benefits of the new covenant, including our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. When I recited the first general order, trailing part, uh, don't quit your, your station until properly relieved. Don't quit your post until properly relieved. Stand your ground, armor up. We fail in that all the time, and that's why we need the refreshment of the Lord's table to quicken us, to remind us to give us strength. Uh, when I was going through basic training, they, they caught a soldier who fell asleep on guard duty. The table of the Lord reminds us uh, to not quit our post until properly relieved, and the Lord is yet to come. He gives us the strength. We're hungry and thirsty. Our eyes are heavy. We're like uh, the Apostle Peter. Our Lord tells him to pray and he falls asleep. And uh, I suspect if you and I were there, we would have been just like Peter, fallen asleep. 
little slumber, a little folding of the hands. What's to worry about? The Lord's table is to quicken us uh, to our duty. Uh, there, is a, uh, there is a reminder of uh, the fencing of the table. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism, question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more and more holy, more and more quickened to live for Him. I mean, I will tell you without any boasting whatsoever, deeply to my shame, I've fallen asleep at my place of duty. I've done things I ought not to have done, thought, thoughts I ought not to have thought. And so the greatness of the mercy of the table is to be refreshed in the forgiveness of sin one time for all time and to recover again the reminder to not quit my post until properly relieved. Uh, as Christ uh, went the distance, even death upon the cross, and uh, full union with the agonies of the power, the forces of darkness, and agonizing, earnestly contending upon the cross to purchase his people, uh, to remind us to do the same. And to remind us again continually, even when we are faithless, our Savior is faithful to keep and to preserve us, uh, meant to quicken us to persevere and to go the distance. Uh, Biblical warrant, of course, is uh, that which is essential to all of us. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 16 and 17. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, a fellowship in the blood of Christ, a receiving of the benefits, being reminded of the benefits. Is not the bread which we break a sharing, a fellowship in the body of Christ? So there's, there's one bread, one cup we partake. At Grace Bible Church, we, uh, we uh, practice what is uh, known as an open communion. Uh, you do not have to be a member of this church to partake, but you do have to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, this service is open to all who confess Christ, have been baptized, who are not under church discipline, and who are not living in some known sin for which they are unrepentant. Uh, that's you. Perhaps you're a visitor passing through, or perhaps you've been here several times and you're not sure. Wonder, again, it's an open communion. This is the Lord's table, not the table of Grace Bible Church. We come because we desperately need Him. We desperately need to be refreshed. We desperately need to be recovered so that we might earnestly contend for the faith and uh, not quit our post until we're properly relieved. Uh, as, I, as I pass the bread, I ask you to hold the element. Uh, invite you to pray in the silence of your own heart. Perhaps there's something that you need to uh, take to the Lord by way of confession uh, if you did not do it at the outset of our service. Uh, perhaps you just need to be reminded of the absolute magnitude of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Savior that he held nothing back. He left nothing. Gave it at all to, to save you and to me, people in this church. Uh, 
Begin to praise Him, to thank Him. Relish what it means to have fellowship by His Spirit with the living Christ. To quicken you. Uh, to reflect upon the benefits of the new covenant. After which time we're, uh, we're all been served, uh, I will give uh, thanksgiving and we will partake together uh, to show that we feed together, we eat together, we are one church, the church of Jesus Christ and, and, and no other. And uh, we, we have a common salvation because of Him. We have a common corpus of the truth because of Him. And so we come to stand unified in that, to be united with the apostolic company, with the reformers of Geneva, uh, the apostles and the prophets, uh, and this morning Jude himself. Let's prepare our hearts to, to receive the, the bread. May the men come forward, been designated to pass.